quick content warning this week. We're in the Old West, so it gets a little violent. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the captivating story of Joaquin Morieta, whose journey might leave you speechless and will definitely make you think. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a headless mule, which is about as threatening as it sounds. This is Myths and Legends, episode 116A, Alta California. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story has an interesting history. It's from both the first novel published in the state of California and the first novel published by a Cherokee man and a Native American man. It was published in 1854, just a couple of years after the event supposedly took place. And for a long time, it was widely considered to be a history of the famous outlaw. To this day, we don't really know what is the actual history and what is legend. It's all the more confusing because the author, John Roland Ridge, includes supposed eyewitness testimony in his account. Nearly 70 years after this novel's publication, it inspired the much more successful character by the name of Zorro, which, about 20 years after that, inspired comic writer Bob Kane and making the little-known character of Batman. Today's story starts in 1849. The U.S. just ended the war with Mexico, and gold was discovered in the new state of California, driving people from all over. People like Joaquin Morieta. Joaquin looked out across the fields, his fields, and smiled. This was America. He'd been raised in northern Mexico by loving parents. Parents that had been killed in the war. Despite everything, he pressed on and studied hard. He was already bright, but knew that intelligence without effort might as well be worse than having no intelligence in the first place. He wasn't proud or haughty, just quietly and consistently the top of his class. It was that same intelligence that drove him north. Mexico had lost the war with America, the Yankees had marched all the way to the capital, and with the treaty, the U.S. took Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and parts of Wyoming and Colorado. But Joaquin didn't care about any of those. He only cared about California. When the war ended, so did the Mexican government, and Joaquin found himself wanting something more than the chaos his country had become. As of compounding Mexico's problems, in 1848, the very same year that the U.S. took California, a carpenter wading through the American River of Coloma, California, discovered gold. The gold rush had begun. Of course, Joaquin knew what he had to do. The day he heard about the gold, he married the girl he loved all 17 years of his life, sold what little he had in the world, and traveled north. Now, two years later, he stood looking out across his own land. He took a deep breath. He'd spent an entire year in the mines when he first arrived, toiling endlessly, all the while saving what money he earned, not drinking or gambling it away. He found a plot on the edge of town and built a house himself while working 70 hours a week underground. At last, his toil paid off. Soon, he would never have to enter a mine again. Well, not as a worker, anyway. Today was the day. In a tin box beneath the floorboards of his house, he had finally saved enough money to buy a mine. His wife called him inside for dinner. Despite everything, despite times when it looked like it might not work out, like he had dragged his family from their homes in Mexico for nothing, 
she always believed in him. She believed in America, that with hard work and self-discipline, they could thrive. And they did. Joaquin looked back inside their cabin with a smile and said he'd be there soon. His gaze returned to the horizon. The sun had set over their land, the view falling dark for the night. He turned his head when something small caught his eye on the horizon. He squinted into the darkness and saw the torches. When Joaquin managed to free his hands the next morning, he kicked the leg loose from the table. He screamed out when he landed on his side. A rib was broken. The wincing cry woke his wife. She had been unconscious since... since they had left. He knew why they left him alive, too. They didn't like him. They didn't like working with him. Too many Mexicans had come north, they told him. If he knew what was good for him, he'd be gone by morning. Joaquin had laughed in their faces as the six of them stood on his front porch. He asked them if they had any idea who they were talking to. He had survived the war in Mexico. He'd survived the trip north. He'd lived in a land that hated him for nothing more than the color of his skin, and you know what? He was smarter. So no, they were right. They weren't going to have to work with him in the future because he was going to buy the mine where they worked and fire them. This was America. There were laws here, and they needed to get off his property. At that moment... A rifle butt cracked against the back of his head, and all had gone black. When he awoke, they were inside. He pulled, but the rope only gripped tighter. He was hogtied on the ground. When one of the men heard him struggling, he came over and kicked him in the ribs, telling him to quiet down. The show was about to begin. They had his wife bound. She wasn't gagged, though. There wasn't anyone around for a mile or so. So there wasn't anyone to hear her screams. No one but Joaquin. All six men made him watch as they all took turns. Joaquin pulled himself across the cabin, past the torn up floorboards and the empty tin box. He dragged himself over to his wife, weeping and bleeding, and he held her. It hurt to pull himself onto the horse, to feel every bump as he rode into town. He helped his wife wash and lie down. There was something he had to do. California might be a new state, but it was a state nonetheless. This was a nation of laws. This was America. He was going to go to the sheriff. Joaquin had seen the offenders around the mines enough to identify them. They wouldn't get away with their crimes. Halfway into town, Joaquin met his friend, Joe Lake. Joe was riding toward him, yelling. He was supposed to be at work. What was he... Joe stopped in his tracks. Joe was Joaquin's first friend. Back when Joaquin first came to America, Joe had helped him secure a job in the mines and negotiate a plot for the house. If Joe was a little less cautious, Joaquin might even consider making him a business partner when it came to buying the new mine. Well, he would have if he didn't lose everything the night before. Joe took one look at his friend and knew something was horribly wrong. Through grunts, Joaquin explained the situation, and Joe agreed. They needed to tell someone. He rode next to his friend, 
making sure Joaquin didn't fall from his horse. His side seared, and even his breathing hurt. Painfully, he dismounted and limped inside the jail. He needed to see the sheriff, he said. The marshal. Anyone. He... Wait. The first face he saw was that of the deputy, smiling back at him. He had seen that same face smiling in the lamplight the night before. No. The deputy stood and asked exactly what he had to say to the sheriff, the marshal, anyone. Joaquin looked like he was in rough shape. What happened to him? Joe looked at Joaquin and then at the deputy. His own eyes widened in realization. He saw Joaquin's hand move to the knife in his pocket and Joe grabbed his arm. He understood his friend wanted to, but he just couldn't. Joaquin felt his friend holding him back and knew that Joe was right. He stood up straight and looked the deputy square in the eyes. Nothing, Joaquin said through clenched teeth. Nothing happened to him. The deputy took a step forward and smiled even wider. Good, now get out. Joaquin sucked his cigarette and slapped the car down face up. He smiled and collected their money. He and his wife had put their house up for sale the morning after the attack. It wasn't right. He shouldn't have to leave his home and his farm. Everything he'd worked hard to achieve, but seeing the deputy that morning, knowing that there would be no recourse if, that is, when, they came again, he didn't see any other choice. He put his farm up for sale and left as soon as he could. Joe was crestfallen, but he understood. Joaquin and his wife had to feel safe. He helped his friends load the wagon and put his hand on Joaquin's shoulder. He hoped to see his old friend again someday. After that, Joaquin and his wife went north. He had a half-brother who made a living dealing Mexican Monte, who all but demanded Joaquin come work with him. Joaquin was smart, and the miners loved to gamble their hard-won gold, so it proved easy money. And Joaquin lost just enough that no one ever got too mad at him. Really, it was better than swinging a pickaxe. And in a few months' time, he was on his way to earning back all that was stolen from him. One night after work, he was visiting his half-brother and noticed it was getting dark. The brother remembered hearing about the attacks down south. He could see Joaquin looking out through the curtains. Hey, how about you borrow my horse tonight so you can get home safe, he offered. That way... If any trouble happens, you can just ride away. Joaquin nodded in thank you and rode off into the night. At first it was a glance or two, then a word, then a shout. Soon, Joaquin was surrounded by a mob demanding that he get down from the horse. Joaquin jerked his arm away and spurred the horse on, but three more men grabbed him and pulled him down. Staring down the barrel of a gun, he didn't move as they tied him to a tree, demanding to know where he got that horse. He said he didn't need to tell them anything. The man with the gun sighed and pulled out his whip. After they drew blood, Joaquin finally told them that the horse was his brother's. The ringleader shook his head and spat on the ground. No, it wasn't. That might have been where Joaquin got it, but it didn't belong to his brother. That horse was stolen. The man told some of the others to go get the brother. While they were gone, about a dozen others took turns whipping Joaquin, 
He clenched his jaw, bracing himself, his breathing loud with every crack, but he refused to give them the satisfaction of a scream. He took everything they gave, studying the face of each man in turn. Finally, his brother arrived. He was on his feet, but barely. His face was cut and bruised, and he struggled to speak as they paraded him past. Joaquin strained at his own ropes, yelling over the mob that he should tell them that the horse wasn't stolen, tell them that he'd had the horse for years. This was a mistake. The brother heard and nodded. He opened his mouth just as the noose cinched around his neck. Two men behind him hoisted him off his feet. Joaquin's screams were drowned out by the jeering crowd as he watched his brother's feet shake, waver, and relax. When he was dead, they cut the body down and left it there in a pile on the ground. Joaquin remained tied to the tree next to the corpse of his brother all night until a friend came out early the next morning and cut him loose. Together and in silence, they collected the body of Joaquin's half-brother. That night changed Joaquin. When he came to America, he believed in America. It was a country founded on the freedoms of the individual, where no matter where you came from, you could start a new life. A place with great freedom, and a place with laws to protect it. And a place where they had murdered his brother in the town square. There had been no trial, no judge. There was only hate. Maybe that horse had been stolen. Maybe they just didn't like seeing a man like Joaquin on a horse. He didn't know. What he did know was that the laws of this land would not protect him. First his wife, and now his brother. Joaquin was left to deal cards and handle drunk miners for his living. He had done everything right, but he had been rewarded with cruelty and hate. As he held his brother's body in his arms, he told himself that he wouldn't live like this. He couldn't. He wouldn't be scared anymore. We'll catch up with Joaquin on his journey, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. That horse you have, it isn't yours, the man heard from the side of the road. He slowed his horse to a trot and saw the man step free from the shadows. He squinted and laughed. He told the man brave or stupid enough to address him like that that he should go back home, unless he wanted to get whipped again. Joaquin sighed. He told the man to get down from the horse and hand it over. That was his final warning. The man laughed again, and he put his right hand on his revolver and his left hand on his whip. That sounded like a threat. Joaquin shook his head. He wouldn't hurt the man. The rider said he knew. He had a gun and a whip and a horse. The brother of the horse thief was clearly unarmed. Joaquin shook his head. The man on his brother's horse should have let him finish. He wouldn't hurt the man, but they would. There was a rustling in the brush behind the man on the horse. A rope looped just below his shoulders, and his eyes widened, just as the rope pulled tight. The gun went off, but clambered to the ground. It didn't clamor quite as hard as the man did, though. Reyes caught the horse and calmed him, while three-fingered Jack and Claudio dragged the rider to the side of the road. 
He was kicking and fighting, but they had him. When Jack's knife went to his throat, he finally calmed down. Slowly, Joaquin approached until he stood over him. You know, when you push and push and push, when you not only take away any recourse people have for justice inside the law, but you turn the law against people, when you push someone so hard and take away everything they've worked for, everything they have, a funny thing happens. Suddenly, they have nothing left to lose. Joaquin nodded to three-fingered Jack. With the jab of his knife, the man on the ground stopped fighting. The disillusioned and displaced numbered more than just Joaquin and the few that had killed the man with his brother's horse. More and more men began dying. To the public, it appeared random. Like bandits were murdering anyone they came across in the streets. But the few that saw the pattern recognized the victims. They were anyone that touched the whip or the rope on the day that Joaquin was whipped and his brother was hung. Then, with the word of a certain sheriff's deputy and a few others down south falling victim as well, Joaquin's revenge was complete. But now, Joaquin found that he had another problem. The horses. They had taken the horses of each man they killed. And now, they had way too many horses. That's when an idea came to Joaquin's mind. An idea that would change his life forever. He sent the horses south. California was still barely a state. And the border with Mexico was literally nothing. It was just a wide expanse. If there was one place he didn't have to worry about people contacting the U.S. authorities, it was Mexico. Right after finishing a war with, and ceding a ton of land to, the U.S. Joaquin, Reyes Feliz, Three-Finger Jack, and others drove the horses south. And in days, they were in Sonora, northern Mexico. Seen as both Joaquin and Reyes were both Sonoran themselves, they quickly found someone willing to buy their horses, even giving the man a deal. After that one job, Joaquin earned more than he did in two years working in the mines. The tin box? He had earned it all back. As he and his friends rode back north, Joaquin could feel the money bumping along in his side. Now, he had another choice to make. He could move somewhere and buy a mine, no one would ever know where the initial money had come from, and he could live the life that he and his wife had dreamed of. Then he remembered his wife. What had happened the last time he had tried to play by the rules? And then he thought of his brother, the flies beginning to gather as he swayed from the tree that night. Someone wanted his horse, so they took it. What if someone wanted Joaquin's mine? What was to stop them, other than the law, run by those who wanted him and his people to disappear? He had tried to do everything the right way, but he only met hate. Yes, Joaquin had a choice to make. A year later, Joaquin's wife asked him if he really needed to leave. Joaquin grimaced, yes. Word came down from Gonzalez that the ranchero was getting antsy, and he was going to leave with his cattle sooner than they thought. Joaquin and the others had to get out there, like now. He stepped from his tent into the chilly early spring air of Mount Shasta. Joaquin had found that he really liked saying his name. He liked people knowing who was the scourge of California. He wanted them to be afraid of him. Like he had once been afraid of them. And as such, he had to move. Obviously, he couldn't commit crimes in broad daylight under his own name, and also have a mailing address. In the beginning, 
There were just whispers that it was Joaquin Murrieta stealing horses. This was actually helpful, too, because it connected him with people like Gonzalez. Gonzalez was a horse thief, and he was so good that sometimes he hit the same ranches over and over again. He taught Joaquin a better way than riding through the night guns blazing. Well, they would still need to do that. But this method would be a lot safer. Gonzalez taught Joaquin the art of blending in. Gonzalez would take jobs at ranches, learn where they were the most vulnerable, and hit them there. The rancheros barely paid attention to the workers. So as long as you put in like 10 minutes into changing your appearance, there was no way you could be found. It was the same way around town. Take Joaquin, for example. The man was already earning a reputation, and that was fine, unless it was attached to Joaquin's face. Joaquin shook his head. He wouldn't wear a mask. Now, Gonzalez said that Joaquin misunderstood. The bandit of growing infamy. That was him. Let everything else be a mask. And so Joaquin did. He and his wife abandoned the small house they had built from Joaquin's car dealing days and skipped town. Somewhere between their home and the next town, they transformed into professional gamblers. Horses disappeared and people died, but no one suspected the rich and extravagant couple that sauntered through town of getting their hands dirty. In the next town, they sought a humble position as a store clerk. In another, they begged. All the while, Gonzalez, Reyes, Manuel Garcia, Valenzuela, and others went with them. Three-Fingered Jack was running his own jobs downstate and just sending Joaquin and his band to cut. Or he didn't. It didn't really matter. He was terrifying, and they were just happy to have him away. Joaquin's group would rob people and drive the horses south. Just a little bit of the money would come back north to fund them as they went from place to place. But most of it stayed in Mexico, waiting for Joaquin's triumphal return, where he, his wife, and everyone who helped him would live like kings. Meanwhile, more people wanted in. Joaquin and his wife played dumb with anyone who wasn't Mexican, and soon their numbers swelled to over 70. One day, as Joaquin looked back on what had become a caravan, he knew that that many people entering a town at once would draw too much attention. They camped in the wild for the night, and the next morning headed north, for Mount Shasta. Native Americans had it worse than the Mexicans. And, like Joaquin and his band, they were willing to fight. Joaquin employed them for bigger jobs, and befriended them too. That's how he learned of Shasta. Joaquin paid the tribes in the area, and he and his band didn't have any problems. On the contrary, they had safety, and a home. The only issue? It was out of the way. They couldn't simply steal some horses, and see the men off to drive them south. It was a days-long ride to the richer ranches, which now meant that Joaquin had to be gone for weeks at a time. By now, his wife was tired of life on the road. She didn't have a problem with what they were doing. She had been hurt even more than her husband. But this just wasn't the life she wanted. Joaquin promised that this might be the one. This was a big one. 25 horses. This might be the one where they could move back to Mexico and put all of this behind them. All of this was very good news to her. She was tired of living in a tent, of being surrounded by criminals, of not being able to make a friend or use her own name for fear that the law might not be far off. But she believed her husband that it would soon all be over. It's what helped her get through those cold nights on Mount Shasta without him. She went to see him off, and five people rode up in the distance. Two were Gonzalez and Reyes, 
she didn't recognize the other three. Joaquin said that they were new, kissed his wife goodbye, and left before she could ask any more questions. When they were all safely out of view of Mount Shasta, Joaquin pulled one of the new riders close, pulled off her disguise, and kissed her. It wasn't the shootouts, or the theft, or even the money that sucked Joaquin deeper into that life. I imagine it was that everyone knew his name. He probably felt that the people respected him, even if they only feared him. Safely holed up in Mount Shasta, he probably felt like he was untouchable. That's why, on the job for 25 horses, while in disguise as a field hand, he overheard two Americans going on about how, if they ever saw Joaquin, the famed bandit, they would shoot him dead on the spot. Reyes tried to stop him. Gonzalez said that this was not how you did the whole low-profile disguise thing, but Joaquin didn't listen. He jumped on the Americans' table, kicked their drinks aside, pulled out his own gun, and said that he was Joaquin, and if anyone was going to do any shooting, it was him. The story says that he just laughed his way out of the bar next, without hurting anyone. Needless to say, they were forced to abandon the job, and as such, they were now a little light on cash. The next day, Reyes looked down the road. Was Joaquin sure about this? Joaquin smiled. What was there to be unsure about? He was Joaquin Marietta. Reyes grimaced. He knew they were tight on funds, but robbing just a normal guy, just some worker? That wasn't what they did. Joaquin said he knew. That's why he wasn't going to rob the man. Watch. Reyes watched Joaquin spur his horse on and ride up ahead of the traveler, sitting on his wagon. Hi there. Do you know who I am? The man nervously looked around at the surrounding hills and brush. Of course you don't. I'm Joaquin Morietta, and, from the look of your terror, I can see that you have heard of me. Cool, this will go much faster. Am I a robber? Yes, yes I am, I do rob people. It's kind of my job. Am I a murderer? Sometimes. But let's get along to the most important question. Am I going to rob and murder you? Absolutely not. Joaquin could see the man was pulling all of his worldly possessions in a wagon. Joaquin said, simply, that he wasn't robbing the man, just asking for a loan. If the man gave Joaquin that loan, he would be very rich. If he didn't, well, why did it even matter what he would do? Who would do something so stupid when the opportunity of a lifetime was sitting right in front of him? Joaquin sighed. The man was sitting there frozen. Both men stared at each other for half a second before Joaquin lunged at the traveler, who was reaching for his gun. Joaquin gripped the man's hand and stared him straight in the eyes. He was going to give him another chance. Joaquin was asking for a loan. He wasn't robbing the man. The traveler nodded, his eyes wide and relaxed. So did Joaquin. The instant Joaquin's hand went away from his, though, it flew right back to the gun. Joaquin panicked. For months after this event he would tell himself that it was automatic, that he didn't have a choice. Joaquin reached for the knife at his belt and, without hesitation, buried it in the man's neck. Blood sprayed out as the traveler dropped the gun by his feet. In seconds, he was unconscious, and in minutes, he was dead. Reyes, Gonzalez, and the others rode up to find Joaquin huddled over the man's possessions, covered in his blood. He had found the money he needed to continue on. He had found it in the man's tin box, hidden under the seat.
Captain Harry Love, which sounds kind of funny as I'm saying it out loud, strode over to the wagon. The man, a traveler by the name of Alan Ruddle, had his throat cut a few days ago. Bandits and animals had picked the wagon clean. But Love knew who killed Ruddle. Joaquin Murieta. He had been following Joaquin for weeks, and by the look of Ruddle's body, Love wasn't far off. He looked on the horizon. He knew exactly where they were going. One ranchero, by the name of San Luis Gonzagos, harbored Joaquin and his gang. His place wasn't far away. Tonight would be the night. Love had been an express rider, or a U.S. mail carrier. If you're thinking that that's not a particularly impressive resume for someone charged with breaking up an organized crime syndicate, I should really add that he was a U.S. mail carrier in Mexico. When the U.S. was at war with Mexico, he delivered letters throughout an active war zone, sometimes going to scouts beyond enemy lines. When word surfaced that a new outlaw was stealing horses up north and driving them to Mexico for sale, Love jumped at the chance. He already found some of Joaquin's lower-level guys and made them talk. Now, he was hot on the trail of the boss himself. He bolstered his crew, telling them to try and keep up. Tonight was the night. His horses worked to a lather. He arrived at the Gonzagos ranch. Half his men went to get Gonzagos and keep him quiet. Love and his best men headed to the tents on the edge of the property. Quietly, they pulled out their guns. There were two tents. Love directed his men to the closer one while he snuck over to the one by the fences. He crept closer and that's when they heard the scream. Their three mistresses were all sleeping in the first tent and the men were surprised as they were. Someone yelled out, he's not here and Love bounded to the other tent, but it was too late. He ripped it open and saw that the back of it was cut open, likely by the same knife that had killed Alan Ruddle. In the distance, a half dozen horses were galloping off into the night. Love rushed back to his own, but his own haste in getting there had left them all exhausted. Joaquin and the others had gotten away. Interrogating the woman and Gonzagos, Love learned the target of their next raid, just as the raid was taking place. Joaquin's escape wasn't even the worst news of the night. They had made off with 20 horses from a nearby ranch. Not only did Joaquin escape the lawman, but he pulled off his biggest job ever, got away with it, and his mistress met him at the rendezvous point. Unfortunately, an hour after the reunion, the first arrow flew across camp. The people of the Tejan Nation, a tribe in the area, didn't care that a band of Mexican-born bandits were stealing American horses, but they knew the people who would care, and they knew what that information would be worth. For the low, low price of half of the horses that Joaquin and his band stole, Chief Zapatara and his people had only to apprehend the group and make sure they never stole a horse again. Zapatara and his men knew the country better than anyone, and so the moment the band stopped to rest after their heist, they made their move. Seeing as Joaquin and his men were spending some alone time with their respective mistresses, it was very easy to apprehend everyone. Completely robbed of not just the money he had stolen from Alan Ruddle, but the horses that should already be halfway to Mexico, Joaquin, his companions, and all of their mistresses were tied naked to trees, with the idea that if the animals didn't kill them immediately, the wilderness would get them eventually. But it was the 1850s, and Zapatara probably wasn't aware of the old trope, 
where if you tie up your adversary and leave him to die, assured that it will happen, it never actually happens. As soon as the Tehan warriors were gone, Joaquin started working on the ropes. Ten minutes and one scraped up back later, the ropes were severed and the naked troop was well on its way. Again, Joaquin looked on the horizon. It was a major setback, but they were alive. They were only a day's walk from Mountain Jim's place, another bandit friendly to Joaquin and his gang. The weather was warm that night, so they would be okay, as long as they didn't run into a mountain lion or a bear. Just then, Joaquin heard the bear. Joaquin heard the scream, and he actually ran toward it. It was coming from Reyes. He ran as fast as he could but he still arrived too late. The bear was bounding off back in the woods with her cub, and Reyes was on the forest floor, bleeding and screaming. His body was torn and mangled, and his girlfriend held him. If Joaquin had possessed a gun, he would have put his friend out of his misery. But the only thing he could do was leave. If they stayed, they could all die, and it didn't look like Reyes would ever be able to walk again, let alone run from the law if it came to that. Reyes' girlfriend glared at Joaquin for even considering leaving him to die alone. But Reyes knew. It was hopeless now. They didn't know how far off Captain Love was. It could take days for him to die. Reyes told Joaquin and the others to go. He didn't want them to die on his account. Both men nodded to each other. Joaquin said goodbye to his friend and left. His girlfriend, however, refused to leave. If he was going to die she was going to die with him. And so, the group moved on without them both. Joaquin laughed the idea of Captain Love off. They had escaped. That is, until Gonzalez was picked up in a grocery store. Gonzagos, after it was revealed that he was hiding fugitives on his property, had given up their names and descriptions quite freely and even though Gonzalez had forgotten being arrested years ago when Love was working down south, Love didn't forget him. Gonzalez didn't even know Love had been watching him until he felt the gun on his head. Love was now the deputy sheriff of the very small and obscure Southern California town called Los Angeles. Joaquin and the others learned of the arrest a day later, and even though Love had a day on them, they could do it. They could overtake the lawman and get their friend back. The band hadn't been able to help Reyes, but they could help Gonzalez. The man was practically family. So they chose the fastest horses they could and took off for LA. The horses were foaming and the riders' spurs bloody. They hadn't let the animals stop once, but it had paid off. Love and Gonzalez were visible in the distance and they were riding fast. They were about 10 minutes outside of town and if they made it, Joaquin wouldn't have to deal with just love, but the entire sheriff's department. His friend would be as good as dead. With new determination, they pressed their horses even harder and smiled. They were going to make it. Gonzalez was the first to hear hoofs and turned around in his saddle to find Joaquin and the others, his whole gang. They wouldn't let him hang. He was going to be all right. Riding alongside love, Gonzalez laughed at him through the dust. Not only was Gonzalez not going to die, but their problems with love were going to be ended too, right outside of Love's town. 
he took another victorious look at his band, following close behind, and turned back to the deputy sheriff. But he found himself looking straight down the barrel of Love's pistol. Love pulled the trigger. Still riding in hot pursuit, Joaquin and the others saw their friend's head explode, the shot echoing through the desert. No one could believe it. He killed him. Love didn't even watch the body fall from the horse. He just kept going. He knew the gang was going to overtake him. And killing Gonzalez was his only way out. He was right, too. As he kicked up dust riding into Los Angeles, Joaquin and the others slowed, stunned by the death of their friend. Joaquin saw Love getting away, and he spurred his horse on. But the creature wouldn't run. It was exhausted. Love had gotten away. They tried to coax their horses up to Gonzales to retrieve his body, but Love didn't give them time for that. The alarm went up in Los Angeles, and, seeing as their horses wouldn't move, they had to escape on foot. Right now. As the men took off, Joaquin looked back briefly to the outline of Los Angeles and the body of his friend that he had to abandon in the street. He would be back and he would do something about this Captain Love. Next week, Joaquin will catch up with old friends and new, and we'll see how his story ends. In lieu of other announcements, Fictional Season 3 premiered yesterday. If you haven't heard of Fictional, it's a podcast where we basically do what we do here, but with classical literature and amazing short stories. This week's is Second Variety by Philip K. Dick. It's set in an alternate future, where the U.S. and Soviet Union are six years into a nuclear war that has devastated the planet. One side creates a technology that might just bring the costly war to an end, and the other discovers a horrible secret. You can find Fictional by going to fictional.fm. The creature this week is the Headless Mule from Brazilian folklore. The headless mule is exactly what it sounds like. A mule. That's headless. And it breathes fire, because, sure. Now, I looked it up, and no, sadly, the headless mule does not breathe fire out of its neck hole. That would be too cool. It's like there's an invisible mule head, and the fire just comes from where the nostrils would be. Kind of a big letdown. The main way this creature comes into existence is when a woman and a priest sin. Together. The woman turns into a headless mule. And I could not find what the priest turned into. There are other versions that are way more lax on what constitutes a headless mule-worthy offense, but don't worry, as long as you don't sin whatsoever, you should be pretty safe. It isn't a full-time thing, either. It's like a werewolf, where every so often on a regular basis, the woman will turn into a headless mule, and maybe terrorize the countryside, passing over the territory of seven parishes, and ending up back in the one where the sin was committed. Now, if you're thinking a headless mule even a fire-breathing one, does not sound super scary? 
you're mostly right. If it sees you, it will follow you forever and try to trample you to death. So as opposed to running, you're advised to lay down in the street, covering your teeth, nails, and anything else shiny, lest they attract the beast's attention. It actually probably won't see you there because I guess on account of it not having eyes, its eyesight is reportedly very bad. It can't be transmitted like a bite from a werewolf or a vampire. So no worries on a countryside full of headless mules. If you want to help out the poor woman, all you have to do is draw the donkey's blood with one pinprick. It will temporarily change into a very sweaty naked person, reeking of sulfur, with a bridle in their mouth. It's said that the woman usually marries the benefactor, and I'm sure it was because she was just so grateful and that they were such a good match. Not because that person, with possession of the bridle, can change her back into a fire-breathing headless mule whenever they feel like it. Nope, not at all. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Chris Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.